Well, please remain standing with me and turn in your Bibles to the first few pages of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26, reading through the end of the chapter. If you're visiting and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you in the worship guide. Uh, You'll find that there or in the pew Bible right in front of you. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Would you join with me as we pray one more time, asking God's blessing on his word preached. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come to your word today with so many needs. All of us have come into your presence so very needy. And so this is our cry. Meet us where we're at and transform us by your word. For you have promised that it's living and active. You've promised that it will never return to you void without accomplishing all that you intend for it to accomplish. You've promised that the one who's planted by it is like a tree that bears fruit in season and out of season and flourishes in all that he does. And so we come to your word with expectation. We need your help. And so Holy Spirit, minister to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we have, if you're visiting with us, we are sort of in the middle of a mini-series on the mission of God in the world. And our premise has been that God is on the move, that he's at work, that God is at work is one of our foundational principles actually as a church. It's just a core assumption. God is moving in this world. He is working in people's lives. And he's on the move. His mission is to put back together everything that has been broken by sin. It is a a work of redemption, taking back what sin has broken and leading people and ultimately all of creation to a place of flourishing. But what about day-to-day life? We spend more hours of our day working 
than any other thing that we do. We spend a third of our day is dedicated to sleeping, praise God. But a third of our day is generally, or more, is dedicated to work. And the other third of our day that is not dedicated to work is spent getting to work, getting ready for work, and getting undone after work. A survey that was released last year celebrated the fact that a whopping 51% of the population was satisfied in their jobs. Now, why would we celebrate the fact that a little over, just a hair over, half of the people were happy about something? Well, we celebrate that because it's an increase. And any slight increase about work, satisfaction will take as a win. So if this thing called work is going to take up the bulk of our lives, we've got to have a sense of how the mission of Jesus in the world intersects with our careers, with our jobs. How does it fit into the mission of what God is doing in the world? Because Christians, unfortunately, often treat work like it is an unfortunate necessity. Children, your parents often treat work like it's vegetables, right? How many times have you heard your mom and dad say, eat your vegetables or you're not going to get dessert, right? It's just the unfortunate necessity to get to the really good stuff. And since a Christian is supposed to support their families, you have to go to work to put food on the table. But eventually you want to get back to the real things that Jesus cares about, things like evangelism or missions or Bible study or caring for the poor. And if I've got to go to work, at least I can use that time to make some money to give to missions and turn it into something functional rather than just a necessary, unfortunate thing like vegetables. We need to develop a theology of work that places our jobs in the middle of the mission of Jesus. In other words, if we're going to give work meaning, it needs to be informed by what God is doing in this world. It needs to be part of that. We need to see it as part of what God is up to in the world. It needs to have meaning. It needs to be informed by the mission of God. And this is the mission. This is the storyline of the Bible. It has to fit neatly and purposely in the storyline of the whole of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption. God created a good world. Sin broke God's good world. And God is putting back together his world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to ask three questions today. Question one, creation, fall, redemption. Why did God create work? Question two, how does the fall, the entrance of sin into the world, how did it break work. And then third, shortly, how does the gospel give freedom to our careers so we can see them differently? So the first question, why did God create work? Work began in paradise. In the in the garden, it's a good part of the fabric of God's creation order. Work is not the result of the entrance of sin into the world. Before sin broke God's good world, God created work, and it was good. It is God's 
good design. And so we start here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It's the sixth day of God's creation activity. And God has taken this formless and void world and he has filled it. He's made it inhabitable. He's put stars in the sky that govern things and he's created sea and land and he's filled both teeming with life. Full of potential. I mean, up until this point, we're sort of following the story and and this this place that God is creating is filled with, it's just teeming with potential and it's begging this question, who's going to take care of it? What's someone going to do with this amazing place of potential that God has made so on the sixth day God answers the question then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth here's God made man in his image now there's a lot of cultural baggage that went into that in the ancient Near East. See, in the ancient Near East where Moses is writing Genesis, he's speaking to a culture that understood what an image of a God was. We see every nation that surrounded them. Every nation had their own little gods. And every little god had a king who ruled over the nation on their behalf to take care of their little nation. Every god had a nation, every nation had a king, and that king was said to be in the image of God. Those nations, their gods were invisible, so they imaged themselves through the king. So it's just absolutely breathtaking that when God creates humankind, he says of each and every one of us, you have immense value so much value that you are a royal image little kings and queens every one of you meant to rule over creation so that you would bring out its potential and make it flourish into something new so fill the earth he says to the brim make more images The intention was this little garden that God had created and one little corner of the world would grow and cover all of creation. And so multiply my images, make more royalty so they could take care of and spread to subdue this garden paradise. Subdue. Have dominion, rule over it. Subdue. That's conquering language. Subjugate it. Subjugate creation make it make the wild creation tame it so that it could be productive useful for good that's the task of work that's why God has made us in his image to take the raw materials of creation and bring about something better and the trajectory of the the storyline gives us some idea of where this was supposed to go because Creation starts in a little garden paradise, but by the time we get done with the story of the Bible, we see a flourishing city. And what is a flourishing city other than a garden that's been cultivated, subdued? And you think about all the things that take place in a city. It's a place of amazing 
ingenuity of cultivation. Think of what it takes to move people around. Cars and metal and rubber and plastics all have come from the raw materials of the ground, but fashioned into an amazing tool that can move us. A computer chips, nothing more than sand and precious metals that have been arranged in such a way that it can carry out very complicated algorithms in a fraction of a second. A building, it's nothing more than sand and wood and earth and metals that have been mined by the ground. And what you see around you is the royal kingly image of God taking the raw materials of creation and turning it into something more grand and beautiful and amazing. That is why we work. It has meaning and creates beauty that infiltrates the most mundane tasks. So the student, your work, your job is to be a student and and think about your job, the most mundane thing like a grammar class. I know a few of you probably like grammar, but you're the exception to the rule. Nobody likes grammar. But what is grammar other than seeing how words can be organized to help communicate and control the world so that great things, greater things can be done? The farmer who cultivates the ground and makes soybeans grow so that pigs and chickens can be fed so you can have eggs and bacon on your plate. The artist who cultivates canvas and pigments and oils so that beauty arises from such simple raw materials that God has built into creation. The car mechanic who cultivates wrenches and parts that the machinist cultivated from the metal that the miner cultivated from the ground so that you can take your family to the doctor and drive your kids to the park so they can play. Beautiful world. And this is where God's design for work is because our jobs is how he is creating beauty and life in his creation. We've not yet finished. There's so much more to do and what it does is when you begin to see it this way it just sort of brings glory into the most mundane purpose gives purpose to the most mundane because work is about loving God by caring for his creation this is from Jean Veef Jean Veef is a Martin Luther scholar and why this is so good is because one of the things that the Reformation brought to the world was a change in a view of vocation. Vocation was only for the spiritual priests. They're the only ones called by God to do something. And what the, what the Reformers saw, particularly Martin Luther, was like all of life is sacred. There's no sacred-secular divide. All of life is sacred. God is working through every single person. And this is what he says. He says, Luther goes so far as to say vocation, your job, your calling in life, whatever that might be, your vocation, he says, is a mask of God. That is, God hides himself in the workplace. God is working through your work. To speak of God being hidden is a way of describing his presence. Like when you say a child might be hiding in a room 
is, is there. He's just not seen. And so to realize that the most mundane activities that make up most of our lives, like going to work, changing a diaper, cleaning up your kids' toys, whatever, doing the paperwork that you hate doing, most people, he says, go on, see God in mystical experiences, spectacular miracles and extraordinary acts they have to do. But to find him in vocation brings him literally down to earth. And it makes us see how close he really is. And it transfigures, changes it into something glorious. All of everyday life. I think that's a mind-blowing vision, honestly. You catch that vision, it should make you want to get up from here and go to work. Even the most tedious parts of your job have meaning because you're an image bearer. But there's another reality that we need to acknowledge because there's the glory of work, but we also need to recognize that Genesis 1 and 2 describe for us how the world should be. But something happens after these chapters. Sin enters the world and breaks it in some very fundamental ways. It breaks the image bearer so we don't function like we should anymore. Sin sin has entered our being. We need to be delivered from it by Jesus, but sin has also cursed the world around us. And so in Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, it's because Adam disobeys God's commands. He chooses to listen to other voices instead of God. The royal image, you feel the tragedy of this. God has made man a a royal image bearer. He's a little king and the king rebels, takes things into his own hands. And so God curses the world because of sin and he curses the world in two very fundamental ways to Eve he said I've told you to be fruitful and multiply and now you're going to feel the curse in your childbearing it's going to be painful and frustrating and I'm going to frustrate your relationship with your husband all of your relationships are going to be affected by the curse of sin and to Adam he says this Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and nothing wrong with listening to the voice of your wife. You should listen to the voice of your wife. You listen to the voice of your wife instead of my voice. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now here's how it affects work. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So it shouldn't surprise us when only 51% of the people are happy and satisfied with their jobs. Because Work has been cursed as well. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or work on the line at GM, you're constantly confronted with thorns and thistles in your job. Sweat 
and frustration in all that we do. I mean, the farmer literally has to fight back thorns and thistles that grow up as he's cultivating the ground, but the factory worker has to deal with machines breaking down. The doctor finds the body's fighting back against all his attempts to heal it. The lawyer finds that the justice system doesn't operate justly all of the time. Everyone finds they have to do more paperwork than they would like to do. Your co-workers are difficult. Students, your teachers don't always grade fairly. The systems are terribly inefficient and you spend more time doing nothing than moving forward. Work feels futile. And the Bible accounts for that. So you got to hold both of these realities in tension. God created work and it's glorious and God has cursed work and it's frustrating. Now, with those two truths in hands, we have to confront a couple of myths. And I think these two myths go hand in hand. And oftentimes, I find these two myths lurking into the lives of God's people, particularly students. These two myths are myths that you have been taught all of your lives, and I want to debunk them. Myth one goes like this. Do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. Myth two, find yourself through your career. So you need to find what you're passionate about. Steve Jobs said it this way in a 2005 Stanford University commencement speech. You got to find what you love. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to truly be satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. But God has not designed work to bear that kind of weight. That's putting the weight of meaning and identity on something that can't bear the weight of meaning and identity. God has not designed work to function that way. This is probably most clearly seen in the, in the questions that we ask when meeting someone. We really want to know who someone is to get under the surface and begin exploring who they are. What do we ask? What do you do? Because work has become such a defining characteristic of your identity. Not only can work not bear the weight of meaning and identity, I think when we, it's only people who have the luxury of pursuing the idol of comfort and ease that you can place that kind of weight on it. The working class seldom tries to find meaning in their work. Everything is supposed to be easy and comfortable, we've come to believe, and so everything must be fun and fulfilling. Find something flip of this is this is my advice to you students find something you're relatively competent at and do it for the glory of God but don't let it hold the place of ultimate meaning work is something we do but it doesn't get the place of defining who you are and you see this is where the gospel breaks in and it frees us to work by freeing us from treating work like it's our savior Because Jesus gives us a rooted identity, rooted in the love of God, so we don't have to go find our identity and our callings and our our jobs. 
Jesus frees us from falling apart from the frustrations of work to recognize this is an ultimate. This is not ultimate. This is not meant to give me meaning or satisfaction or joy. He has done that for me. The Father enjoys me because he has died for my sins and been raised for me and I'm with him. My joy is wrapped up in the Father's enjoyment of me and Christ. And so I'm free from treating work like it, it, it's supposed to bring me joy. And frustration doesn't have to demotivate me in the same way. Because the message we receive now is, sort of changed a little bit. It's still trying to put weight of meaning and joy and identity on work, but the The messaging is changing just a slight bit, and it's this. If you're busy, then you're important. And if you're important, then you have worth. Researchers from Harvard recently concluded a study, and this was their findings. Americans increasingly perceive busy and overworked people as having high status. The researchers concluded that our new conspicuous consumption is no longer about scarce things like jewelry or money or cars. Instead, it's about saying, I am the scarce resource and therefore I am valuable. Displaying one's busyness at work and lack of leisure time operates as a visible signal of status in the eyes of others. Is it surprising that anxiety is rising in our nation when that's sort of the the thing we're trying to live under. Do more, do more, do more, do more. Work harder, work harder, work harder just to prove that you're somebody. Anxiety's up. Depression is up. But the God, and it just kills us. Here's the the promise of the gospel. The God of life, who has put you to work for his glory, freely gives life because he has life in himself. He gave his own son. He gives his spirit to those who ask. He gives a new identity to those who need it. And so Jesus alone can bear that kind of weight. By the way, rest is just as much an important component as work is. God has commanded you work six days. He's also commanded you rest one. And so, listen how Paul, I mean, who worked harder than the Apostle Paul for the sake of Jesus' mission? But this is what he says. Look, I don't see myself in my work. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, this body I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where the gospel transforms work. So I don't, it shifts the weight of work from love what you do. It shifts it to love who you do it for because he loves me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So let me close with this. In the Gospels, where we sort of hold these two things in tension, God's created work, it's glorious. He's frustrated work in the curse of sin. 
and the gospel frees us to work, when you hold all those things in tension, then work actually then becomes a function of loving God and loving neighbor. Because Jesus is bringing blessing to this world through whatever it is that he's called me to do for my vocation. He's bringing beauty and good things. Again, Gene V. It's a long quote. Let me quote it because he'd say it better than I could. When we or a loved one gets sick, we pray for healing. Certainly God can and sometimes does grant healing through a miracle. But normally, he grants healing through the vocation of doctors and nurses pharmacists, lab technicians, and the like. And I'd add to that list the lady who changed the sheets and the man who's cleaned the floor in the hospital. It is still God who heals us, but he works through the means of skilled, talented, divinely equipped human beings. When God blesses us, he almost always does it through other people. The ability to read God's word is an inexpressible, precious blessing. But reading is an ability that did not spring fully formed into young minds. It requires the vocation of teachers. God protects us through the police officer on the beat and the whole panoply of the legal system. He gives us beauty and meaning through artists. He lets us travel through the ministry of auto workers, mechanics, road crews, airline employees. He keeps us clean through the work of garbage collectors, plumbers, sanitation workers, and sometimes the undocumented aliens who clean our hotel rooms. He brings people to salvation through pastors and through anyone else who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. The fast food worker, the inventor, the clerical assistant, the scientist, the accountant, the musician, they all have high callings. Used by God to bless and serve his people and all of creation. Let's pray. Father, what great dignity you've given to us. We bear your image. And yet, sin is broken so much. We need you Lord Jesus, our precious Redeemer, to redeem us from falling into so many traps concerning work so that whatever we do, whether we eat or sleep or go to work, we might do it all for the glory of God. This is our prayer. This is our hope. So we pray it in your name. Amen.